Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talk to forensic jewellery expert Maria McLennan. Maria is a lecturer in jewellery and silversmithing at the Edinburgh College of Art and researches jewellery's role in human identification. She spent five years applying this research with Police Scotland and the Scottish Police Authority and, as you'll hear in this conversation, has advised on criminal cases involving identification through jewellery. So this episode comes with a content warning. My conversation with Maria covers police forensic work involving human remains in both accidental and criminal cases, which some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. So if that's not something that you fancy hearing about right now, then consider giving this episode a miss. I started by asking Maria about her route to becoming a forensic jewellery expert. In terms of my story, it was a very serendipitous journey to get to where I am now. Um, I trained as a jewellery designer originally, so I, I come from the kind of design background rather than the forensic or the policing or any kind of scientific background whatsoever um and I ironically I think um you know I've always been interested in materials um as you say somebody who is studying a primarily crafts-based discipline and materials are hugely important and a lot of us are materials driven um and practice led but for me, I was always more interested behind um, in the stories behind jewellery and the people that kind of either made it or wore it or kind of came to engage with it somehow. Um, so sitting at a jewellery bench making jewellery was kind of fun, but I, I also felt a little bit detached from it. And I, I, I felt that there was something missing whereby when other jewellery designers were sitting down at the bench, they they talked about this amazing creative process and this affinity that they had with tools and materials. And I thought, oh, there's something wrong with me that I don't <laughs> feel that way. Um, I don't feel that connection, maybe, mm. with my hand and the tool I'm holding or the material that I'm working with. Um so I guess in, in a kind of roundabout way, I, I knew I loved jewellery, but I didn't really know what else I could do with that degree or with that practice. Um, 
and I, I did a bit of a 360 in that I kind of moved away from jewellery and, and studied design more generally. And I, I moved into the remit of service design and interdisciplinary design. Um, so I started to think of design as a tool for problem solving and mm. a methodology. Um, and that really led me into working with um everybody from kind of the police to um, embalmers, forensic scientists, um, and kind of understanding the applications of design beyond the discipline of design itself. Um, and I say I did a 360 in that it was only really by kind of moving into these fields such as policing, crime and forensic science, I, I, I fell in love all over again with my own discipline because I understood the value of, um, you know, not just in a financial or monetary sense, I understood the value of jewellery or gemstones or diamonds or silver in fields such as criminology um, and forensic science. And I, I kind of then had a newfound appreciation for the discipline um, and everyone within it, because I started to understand jewellers and gemologists and valuers as as investigators and as detectives. Mm. Um, so I I kind of maybe came to that realisation quite late, because I think a lot of the jewellery discipline already prides itself on, on its detective work. Um, appraisers or gemologists, for example, they they sit with their microscopes, they, they view these um, amazing tiny detailed galaxies um, <laughs> of information and I didn't really think of jewellery like that until actually I'd experienced working in quite a far-reaching discipline like like forensic science mm. so so yeah the advice I have in terms of how other people would get into the field um, I think a lot of jewellers are already forensically minded they're already doing a lot of detective and forensic work um, so I guess the question is more about how we bring together these quite disparate fields, actually, and create more of a, a foundation for which these these two disciplines can come together and work more closely um, mm. in the future. Yeah. So what what does the work of a forensic jewellery expert involve? You know, how how can you use jewellery as a forensic tool? I think... Um, one of the things that makes jewellery so fascinating um, in a forensic context is it's kind of its associations with identity, um, death and the human body, which I guess are the three tenets that I, I'm sort of really interested in. Um, it's not actually a new or an innovative um, application for jewellery. It's actually one of the oldest practices that we have is to kind of use decoration and adornment of the body in some way to kind of communicate our our identity um you know even kind of back in back in the caveman days you know we were sort of fashioning jewelry out of um teeth and shells and um, the material that we had around us and the thing I find fascinating I'm not an archaeologist I would I would love to be but um is the kind of the social value of jewellery, you know, even in those kind of really primitive days, um, we weren't kind of really keeping ourselves warm or, or feeding one another or providing shelter through jewellery. 
it was it was that additional social value. Um, so whether it was a status or or symbol of power, um, whether it was to denote some kind of um, belonging to a tribe, or you know there was always that additional layer of meaning that denoted something about the individuals who mm. made it or wore it or gifted it. And I think the same is true to to this day, where if we found hypothetically a piece of jewellery on a a body, an unidentified set of human remains, um, we can identify in most cases the maker of the piece of jewellery and understand therefore potentially who it was made for, Mm. um, where it was made, why it was made. And we can kind of begin that process of tracing that piece of jewellery back through the maker or the manufacturer or the designer potentially to the owner or the wearer Mm. um so it's not always the most scientific or reliable or consistent approach but um in theory and in and in practice on a number of occasions um it's it's highly possible to use jewelry in that manner so i guess the practice of a forensic jeweler is kind of using the principles and tools and techniques that underpin jewelry Mm. um and jewellery identification in general um, within that criminal or forensic setting. It's such an interesting mixture, isn't it, of, of disciplines. Um, what materials properties do you sort of look for or value, I suppose, in these materials? Well, firstly, what are the materials, I suppose? But then, you know, how do their materials properties help you do this? I think, yeah, it's a really interesting question because I, I never... I don't suppose I ever really think of myself as being, I've never really thought of myself as being someone who's all that materials driven. Mm. And, you know, even when I, I I talked earlier about kind of sitting down at the bench and having different materials or tools in front of me and feeling a bit of a disconnect with, mm. um, you know, the ideas maybe I had in my mind and how I wanted to kind of realise those in practice. Um, right through to, to, to now, um, I sort of, I, I guess I think of my work as being um, the materials get me for me to be sometimes, you know, so by identifying the materials, be it um, a particular kind of golds that I can age or date um, or, or, you know, locate to a particular um era of time or place or geographic kind of region um I'm not a gemologist but in theory you know you can use the same principles for um determining where a a diamond or a gemstone came from Mm. or being able to kind of identify the the engraving or the serial number on uh, a diamond or on a watch you can kind of retrace the steps um or the journey that that piece has been on Mm. so for me the materials are kind of clues and I can kind of reconstruct I guess a a potential or hypothetical um context or series of events or scenarios by looking for the the kind of clues that the materials provide um whether that's the, the the age of the material or the way that the material was constructed um or even the kind of user personalization if the individual themselves mm. has kind of adapted that material in some way um i'm always quite interested in how we personalize our own and so even if it's not a professional repair job for Mm. example um we 
are always kind of altering and fiddling and fidgeting with our own um, pieces of jewellery or our clothing or our own personal effects in a way that um, sets sets us apart from our neighbours or our peers. Mm. So for me, materials are clues, just as any crime scene, I guess, leaves a a clue or a trace it's just about how you identify and then how you reconstruct using your own knowledge of those materials mm. and how they were brought into fruition um to kind of lead you down a particular avenue of investigation sure and I guess as well you know not to get too gruesome about it but these are very long-lasting materials metals gemstones very hard there, there could be instances where maybe these materials are some of the only clues that you've got in terms of um you know where where the person was found what what had happened to them all this sort of stuff yeah yeah absolutely um and I think um you know there is there is a really cruel <laughs> irony in a lot of the phrases like diamonds are forever and you know they they, they really do like the materials um that jewelry i guess more traditionally is made from they they do have that that physical um you know it, it's very robust it can as you say withstand mm. a lot of trauma um a lot of exposure to the elements um and it, it it sadly does often outlive its its human hosts um so where we have things like um metals and gemstones they 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 survive um far better than kind mm. of textiles and, and and other materials that are prone to disintegration um they they do survive um the, the test of time as well um whether that's kind of you know through sort of archaeological contexts or whether it's through um you know increasing mm. impact and trauma from a series of well, events building collapses plane crashes um yeah they can withstand and resist a lot of um trauma and impact um but i guess that's that's coupled with the fact that we are no longer always relying on those materials for jewelry you know increasingly we're moving into the the realm of mass manufacture and we're using kind of plastics and paper and we're experimenting with innovative manufacturing um techniques too so um mm. there are kind of pros and cons I guess to the materials we use and certainly in a forensic setting what that means um in terms of identification yeah yeah that's interesting because like what you were saying earlier about you know potentially serial numbers or if if you have maybe certain kind of fingerprints of jewelers that are really um, distinct you know and well known then it's easier to sort of trace them back whereas if it's pieces that are mass produced or kind of widely worn then that's going to be less of a useful lead I guess yeah definitely and and I mean there's there's always ways in which um you know it's it's very circumstantial and context specific mm. but um there are still ways that that cheaper mass-produced um, items can be really useful and, and, and can provide that um, that vital piece of evidence or clue in an investigation. Um, so even, even where something doesn't possess a serial number or isn't of a particularly high financial value, um, you know, we, we, we do see it's, it's possible to lift DNA, for example, off mm. surfaces that are, um, you know, not, not just metal, not just diamonds, um, 
Equally, as I mentioned, user personalization, you know, if there's a particular sentimental value to something, if an individual is constantly kind of wearing or holding or using or carrying with them on a daily basis, mm. um, a piece, um, you know, it can even be recognizable from members of the public, family, friends, um, Facebook photographs, you know, right. there are all sorts of ways in which social media is kind of providing mm. a, a crucial identification elements so materials don't have to necessarily be physical they could be digital Mm. and um yeah there there, there are other ways in which these cheaper and mass produced items um can still be differentiated can still be personalized and can still be kind of traced back to the individual Mm, yeah Um, are you able to share any sort of stories from your work yeah, I think there, I mean, there's there's definitely things that have stuck with me where um, I remember one of the questions I, I got asked, certainly when I first got into this area, um, I got asked quite a lot at the beginning was how somebody with my training and experience copes with the, the kind of working in a mortuary or visiting a, a crash site mm. or, you know, even just looking at images, not necessarily being up all that close and personal but even just talking about these types of theme I don't really have the formal training and how how did I handle it how do I handle it Mm. um and I think um the thing that still to this day always jumps out at me and sticks in my mind is that for me seeing things like jewelry and 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 experiencing um and kind of um having that connection maybe it is because of my background um but I, I find those more upsetting sometimes and um, triggering, I guess, because balled up in that tiny little piece of jewellery um, is a whole life um, and, and story and set of experiences, relationships mm. um, of that individual. Um, and there's something about witnessing a really personal piece of jewellery in that kind of context yeah. that is really probably more disturbing and more upsetting than seeing and being presented with a body Mm. um you know and and I think um maybe there's a a sense of being desensitized to that kind of imagery that comes from seeing it in um Hollywood dramatizations and crime scene television shows but um yeah the thing that always strikes me um is in, in a mass fatality context in particular, um, seeing, you know, just rows and rows sometimes of personal effects, jewellery, um, images from people's kind of wallets or purses, um, their handwriting, all of these personal objects they own is not just um, not just exclusive to jewellery. Um, that's a real kind of keyhole into their lives it's a really Mm. private and really personal thing and um I'll never forget the first kind of time I saw all of these items co-mingled together Mm. you know and and you just get a sense of how all of these individuals lives were very sadly and very cruelly also kind of um co-mingled into this sort of collective identity um Mm. so that's you know that can be sad but when you are able to then almost 
try to separate out and look for the meaning and search amongst the the, the the debris, you know, for actually quite literally the diamond in the rough sometimes. <laughs> um, but also pro- the proverbial, and um, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that little glimmer, that little glimmer of hope, but mm. also that one tiny clue that you could use to potentially identify an individual based on all of these disparate pieces of information. Um, it's it's difficult, but when you are able to find that little clue, that could be the thing that then unravels a whole um, host of other avenues of investigation that um, are more scientific. So then you can start looking for things like DNA, mm. fingerprints, dental records, and the more kind of reliable, as it were, means of establishing identity. So so yeah, for me, I think it's always going to be quite shocking. Um, I don't think it ever gets easier, but I think when you're able to sort of, um, you know, find the meaning in that chaos, um, mm. that's where it's really, really beneficial and powerful work. And you kind of reminded of the value and the different value of a piece of jewelry. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I, I mean, what I would say is a lot of a lot of my research is is theoretical. Mm. Um, I, I won't shy away from the fact that it's um, it's primarily research, and the the cases I have worked on um, in the past have either been not only ongoing forensic cases, but sometimes ongoing criminal cases. Mm. So um, I I'm either not allowed to talk, or I, I I try to not talk about the specifics, just out of respect for yeah. the the individuals involved um but um yeah there, there have been a number of cases where either specific examples of jewelry specific pieces have stood out or the contribution mm. um that piece has had to the case has been really quite um I mean, I've certainly I've had kind of investigators or police officers ask for my advice in in identifying the piece of jewellery. And what they're looking for really is more of a um, 
can you tell us who this belonged to or yeah. can you tell us um, something about the individual based on the jewellery and I, I don't often get a lot of the context I'm mm. often not allowed yeah. a lot of the context um, and I, I always have to try and reiterate that the context is everything mm. um, and in yes in isolation I could identify the piece of jewellery um, and tell you something about that but there's so much more to jewellery's contribution in a case than just identifying the piece. Um, you know, so where that piece was located in a crime scene, that can tell, that can speak volumes mm. about, um, you know, who last interacted with it or how and where it was positioned could provide a really crucial clue. And that could be the difference between um, a death being accidental or deliberate. Mm. It could be the difference between a crime scene being staged um, somehow or, you know, being more of a kind of natural or accidental. Um, So I often find that the lack of understanding that the police and other investigators currently have about the value of something and the importance of the contribution of jewellery I miss a lot of the context because they just don't think that's actually that important. Right. Um, which is, is a shame. And I think that's where there's a lot of the, the theoretical applications for my research still haven't been quite translated into practice yet. Mm. So what, what, what are your current research questions? What are you trying to answer? Um, I've become really interested in, um, more recently in um well I, I'm increasingly interested in gemology which mm. um I'm not a professional gemologist but I've just started to take further courses in that because I think forensic gemology I guess is is a discipline that has been referred to um in the past but I think um mostly that's about kind of um I don't think that's forensic in the same way that I use the word. And they talk more about kind of litigation or insurance or um, jewellery and gem theft and trafficking and whether or not stones have been switched out. Mm -hmm. Or um, So the area of jewellery and gem theft is really interesting because it's one of the fastest growing crimes internationally that can be seen as a, a bridge into other areas such as terrorism and kind of Mm. drug smuggling so that's quite interesting but I think there are other applications for gemological techniques in the same way that jewellery techniques have been applied to the area of forensic human identification Um, and there have already been a number of cases where the the Gemological Institute of America who are the kind of national body for um, diamonds and gems in the US they they work with the police um on a number of cases whereby they've been able to track and trace diamonds that have been involved in crimes Mm. that have been recovered in homicide investigations for example so I I'm becoming increasingly interested in 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 that kind of area but um in terms of research questions haven't really fully formed one (laughs) in that respect yet um But I'm also quite interested in, um, I mean, we talked earlier about how new technologies or materials Mm. or mass manufacturing might creep in and actually be a bit of an issue or a bit of a problem. Um, But actually, I think there's a whole host of opportunities um, whereby contemporary jewellery and art jewellery, you know, 
I'm interested in the future archaeological um, potential of those pieces. Mm. So the kind of work that contemporary designers are putting out into the world, what are the consequences and implications for um, our our kind of future ancestors in digging up those sorts of artefacts? And if they were trying to um, look at kind of the material culture or the forensic jewellery that we leave behind, I guess I'm really interested in the, the, the problems or the potential implications um, for future wear, use and identity that mm. both the materials we're using, but also the, um, I guess, the purpose and the reason that we're currently putting work out into the world isn't just for a particular purpose anymore. It's it's experimental, it's abstract, mm. it's... Um, probably going to cause a lot of confusion for some of the future generations <laughs> yeah and what will all of that say about us as a society in 2021 <laughs> exactly exactly and I think um the wider I guess research question I suppose that captures all of that is I'm really interested in I guess jewelry as different forms of data mm. um you know, we, we've understood it as archaeological, anthropological, material culture. We're now understanding it as potentially forensic um, evidence or criminal evidence. But I think with the increase in digital wearables, um, Fitbits um, and kind of, you know, increasingly miniaturized technologies that are being introduced in relation to the body, primarily sometimes using jewellery as a way in which to kind of sight those around the body um i mean those are kind of pooling data from our body through our biometrics um mm. you know there's a way that our jewelry is now kind of being used as um a means to capture and store and harness data so i think that idea of jewelry as data in both a kind of qualitative and quantitative historical, contemporary and future sense, I think is a really interesting space. Um, So from a forensic perspective, I think there's a lot of potential to explore that further as well. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I I often ask makers this or experts this, um, and I've had a range of responses. So I'm not sure how you feel about this, but what's the most sort of surprising thing that you've learned Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think, I think actually, when I first sort of became involved in the area, I remember the. I'm a big fan of kind of juxtapositions and contrasts, and um, I think for me it was. I guess it was. It was quite cool thinking. Oh, forensics and jewelry. That's that's kind of. Um, it's that sort of CSI sexy science in a way, isn't it? It's something that, and I I don't mean that in any sort of sense, like any disrespectful sense whatsoever, but, you know, we are fascinated by true crime and forensics and um, people are really interested in kind of new technologies and Mm. how, you know, these, these kind of disciplines that traditionally aren't associated with one another could come together. Um, And, I guess that kind of fascinated me and I, I thought, wow, we've really been missing a trip here. These disciplines could kind of share knowledge and mm. there's a whole new field that could emerge as a result. And the more I get involved in it, the more I explore it, the more I work with experts in um, both the fields of forensics and 
jewellery. I guess the thing that I found most surprising is how similar they both are. Mm. Um, and actually, they're not that polarised. They're not that different. Um, there is an element of of art in forensics Mm. there's an element of creativity and and imagination and piecing together those jigsaw puzzles that is you know there's an element of being able to think um outside the box a little bit and and kind of um imagine these potential scenarios or these plausible scenarios Mm. um and there's maybe a little bit more subjectivity in forensics than i thought Mm. And on the flip side of that coin, um, there's a whole host of detective work involved in in jewellery design, in in jewellery valuation, appraisal, identification. Um, and actually, a lot of it is quite objective. Um, mm. You know, there is there is a, a science to it. There is a really scientific, um, methodical objectivity. Um, so there's a lovely kind of sense of the two disciplines actually being quite similar and yet there's still room for each one to kind of learn from one another and and grow from one another and share knowledge so um yeah it probably surprised me the most to learn actually um they're quite similar and Mm. then it made me think I guess how how many other disciplines are out there that could come together and, and actually already have parallels and um it always got me thinking like, you know, we have forensic textile science, for example, um, fiber evidence. Um, mm. And what would happen if a textile designer actually came along and started to sort of investigate that with their designerly mind? Yeah. Um, so that that kind of thing really interested me. And I, I'm fascinated by forensic art and how they use the, the principles that underpin art and sculpture mm. um, and, and drawing and, and things like that um, and apply that in a forensic context. So it made me think more about, well, then what would forensic design be and how could other disciplines of design, graphic design, architectural design, interior design, um, a lot of those principles are already used in kind of criminal and forensic contexts. But mm. what would happen if a designer applied their way of thinking to that kind of um, setting? It's a really, it's exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast is through the lens of materials, kind of demonstrate that there are all these different perspectives that we can take you know from one end of the spectrum very scientific where I've trained all the way to the other side you know artists and craftspeople and and designers like you say um all looking at the same stuff and thinking about it in a different way but actually the overlaps are huge um and it's interesting what you were saying about the the ways of thinking sometimes actually being quite similar but just having um sort of a different context I suppose yeah yeah definitely and I I think um you know there there's so many obvious connections Mm. um I've I've come to learn and some sometimes I I I sort of I'll stumble across something and I'll think oh wow I I wonder does anyone already know that and I'm not sure if it's something I have stumbled across or if it's something that either discipline has already been doing for a number of years and I guess that's the nature of research in general but Mm. um it's it's interesting because I think although each discipline is kind of doing its own thing 
in respect of, say, let's use forensic textile science again as an example. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with a couple of really um, wonderful makers who are moving into the field of fashion forensics. Mm. Um, so individuals who are fashion historians or clothing designers, and, you know, they're all approaching it from slightly different perspectives, but there are um, a number of academic projects in America as well um, that are kind of looking at the forensic history of clothing um, and the criminal kind of implications of clothing. So um, again, is it something that the fields of forensics and criminology have already looked at? Well, yes, in a way, but they won't have done it in the same way. Mm. New insight will be gathered and, and, and gleaned from these new perspectives, as you're saying. So mm. um, I think you can revisit the same topic a hundred times over, but it's the perspective that you bring that will always provide that fresh and that new insight. And I think that's where even with a, a long-standing forensic discipline that we think we really know um you know lots and lots about I think get somebody with a brand new perspective and take on it and Mm. you will you will absolutely learn something that you didn't already know definitely so if people have been interested um to hear from you and about this field is there anywhere that they can go to kind of find out more about it or to look you up and see what you're up to um, yeah, I think um, so. I, I I need a website and I don't have one yet. <laughs> okay. So hopefully there will be one soon. But I think the best um, and probably um, most informal way is maybe to catch me on Instagram. And um, I'm always happy to receive a little message on Instagram and we can then take it, um, take it into emailing or take it into the more appropriate mode of communication from there so um my instagram handle is just at forensic jewelry um spelt in the kind of british english um sense of the word so um yeah i'm more than happy to be contacted there fantastic thank you so much for chatting to me this is a field that i knew absolutely nothing about i didn't even know it existed before we got introduced (laughs) so i've learned a lot today (laughs) you're not the only one it's a field i knew nothing about and um still every day um i wonder how i how i found myself here and um yeah as, as i say i think um for anyone interested in getting involved there really is no formal route so um yeah I'm happy to chat to anyone and thank you so much for having me um it's been really wonderful to chat to you too real pleasure so that was the incredible Maria McLennan on forensic jewelry a huge thank you to her for coming on the show and for sharing her unique expertise with us on the podcast that's everything for this week as always it'd be awesome if you could like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to keep up to date with everything that is going on at handmade hq if you want to say hi to us on social media you can do so on twitter at real talk that's r-i-a-l talk and on instagram at handmade pod if you feel like supporting the podcast with a one-time financial donation you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade huge thanks to everyone who has already done so Thanks too to Dave Shepard for our awesome cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next week, I'll be talking to embroiderer Julia Lodigwina. So until then, take very good care and I'll speak to you next time on Handmade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are, and when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers: Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.